Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. What you'll find here are some recent musings about the God of the Bible and living in such a way as to bring Him pleasure. Happy musing. A few months ago, I was sitting in my son's backyard in Nashville, Tennessee, on a visit, and I began to muse about what a balanced life is composed of and and how far most of us are from living that balanced life. And I've lived long enough and know enough about the checkered history of the church, the I've seen too many bizarre things. I've made too many mistakes on my own to expect all our extremes to just vanish away. But I've amended my expectations as a result of that from no extremes to less extreme. And for our pendulum swings to be limited, but not necessarily entirely eliminated. And so I wrote a a two-part blog on that called The Beauty of Balance, and I encourage you to read it. And you can find that at uh, musingthemysteries.wordpress.com. I decided I wanted to summarize those thoughts and then share a chapter from the book of Romans that helps me at least know what I'm shooting for in terms of a balanced ideology, theology, politics, relationships, a balanced life that's beautiful. And I said in the blog uh, that it's ugly at the edges, Uh, that is, it's ugly out at the extremes. People don't treat each other well when we live in extreme ideologies. I'm not a fan of shock jocks in the media or their equivalent behind pulpits. People that do, you know, evocative propagandizing and just try to stir people's emotions, and especially Christians who should be looking through the lens of Scripture instead of at a screen on their TV or computer and developing, you know, from the Bible, a biblically informed conscience. But it's ugly out on the edges. It is. We don't treat each other out there well. It gets freaky on the fringes. And frankly, it keeps us immature and diminishes our testimony in the world. You know, only Jesus was perfectly balanced, right? We're all tangled up and we tend toward extremes. So if you're looking for somebody to follow, don't necessarily follow me or another preacher or politician or pundit. Follow Jesus. With everyone else, you're going to have to eat the meat and spit out the bones, but not with Jesus. And so I propose that there were at least two enemies of balance, anger and fear. Anger and fear, they drive us to the edges, to the extremes. They chase us there and then repel us, I think, from the center of God's ways. Of course, with anger, we know that the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. Some things should make us mad. In our anger at one extreme, we should be careful not to rush to the opposite extreme. In other words, don't be so angry at one thing that you bolt over to its antithesis. And then fear... You know, fear, of course, is the proper response to actual danger. 
But the Bible says over and over, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It means don't let your fear run away with you. Where it throws us off balance is when we're so scared of a certain extreme camp that we join the opposite camp. Reminds me of Amos 5.19 that says, as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. We, we run right past center to the opposite extreme. While we're ev- evading one objectionable ideology, we, we run past balance and onto something equally ob- objectionable. So there's like in legalistic religion, so we run away from that, we run right past Jesus and onto a religion of license. Or uh, we object to the religion of license and we run right past Jesus and right into the arms of legalistic religion. No one is immune from extremes. I mean, anger and fear are not the exclusive possession of the politically right or the politically left or the religiously left or right. So if you're afraid or angry about the liberal, don't go to the conservative extreme. Or if you're angry or afraid of the conservative, don't go to the extreme of liberality. Jesus was the only one, as I said, who demonstrated the beautiful balance. The Bible says that he was full of truth and grace, both intention. And we need both of those in balance. We got to find Jesus in the center. And so a lot of our beliefs and values, we've, we've developed them on the run. We're either running away in fear or running at something in anger. And it's really hard to assess the merit of something when we're running past it. And we're usually doing that. We're running right past the truth. What we've got to do is slow down a little, if not stop altogether, so we can see things for what they are rather than just the blur that we see while rushing past it. So we've got to, as I said in the blog, find our way back to center. Paul said that we be no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. And David said, teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Good judgment. That's what Christians need is better judgment. I mean, I realize until we go to the perfect place, to the beautifully balanced place, our pendulum swings in this life are inevitable. They're inescapable. But until then, what we need is the Holy Spirit to breathe into our sails and then adjust our boom, set the rudder in the right direction, and harness his power to travel toward center. Let's at least travel toward center. Like the last book of the Bible, he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. That's where Jesus is, at the center of the throne. So what I'd like to do is share how Romans chapter 12 is kind of Paul's text on the balanced life and uh, his description of a beautifully balanced life. Uh, It's the one that starts with, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, that's to me the definition of a beautifully balanced life. It's the opposite of an eccentric life. Eccentric means to be off-center like the the hub of a wheel, if it's not at the center of the wheel, it's not going to, the wheel isn't going to roll right. And our lives don't roll right when we're off center, we're eccentric. But God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is a description, I think, for of Paul's for this life of shalom. I'll talk about that in a minute, but his balanced perspective. And with that definition in mind, You know, I have to say that there are a lot of eccentric Christians, and probably all of us are, obviously all of us are, to some degree or another eccentric. But now the rest of this chapter is the unpacking of his good, pleasing, and perfect will, what it looks like and how to achieve it. So God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's balance. That's beautiful balance. Everything else is out of balance, out of whack. And how far out of whack is determined by how far we are from God and His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's there's a center, a point of balance. It's it's not the metaphysical principle of yin and yang. The center is a person, not a principle. And it's proximity to this person that is really, you know, the balanced life. And Probably the best biblical term for it throughout the Bible is shalom. It's an Old Testament uh, Hebrew term, but it doesn't just mean peace. We're, we know about shalom and Hebrews will, when they uh, say hello or say goodbye, it's uh, shalom and peace. But it means more than peace, the absence of conflict. It's Shalom really means completeness, soundness, wholeness, and I would add balance. So, in this chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12, I intend to end where Paul begins. He begins telling us how to get there, but then he tells us where we're going. Well, let's take a cursory glance at, at uh, where we're going, Paul's description of the balanced life throughout the chapter, and then we'll come back to the beginning verses and talk about how to get there. And so he describes this beautifully balanced lifestyle in the chapter and what we, do to, what we have to do to achieve it. And so I'm going to start with verse 3, and then, like I said, go back to verses 1 and 2 at the end of the chapter. The, we've concluded our comments on the rest of these verses. We'll end up where he began the discussion. So verse 3, he says, Because by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's nothing so puts us out of whack, out of balance, makes us more eccentric than pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis called pride the utmost evil. He said, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads, C.S. Lewis says, to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And I don't think that's overstated. 
I really don't. I mean, because that's what we, our problem is. We have is that we have the wrong center. We're in the center, right? And so we can't find a balanced life when we are, you know, kicking Jesus out of the center and putting ourselves in that place. And he says, think of yourself uh, with sober judgment, balanced thinking. I mean, when you're not sober, if you're thinking about, you know, drugs or alcohol, kind of uh, lack of sobriety, when you're not sober, you got no balance. I mean, you stagger from one extreme to the other. Your judgment is out of whack. And it's not just your motor skills, but your judgment, your, your mindset, the way you think is out of whack when you're not sober. A lack of sobriety gives us a, a sense of omnicompetence that we, you know, they call alcohol liquid courage, uh, you know, that you just feel like you can do anything. Well, uh, this is Paul's metaphor, and he's uh, using sober thinking, a kind of thinking where you're not in the middle, but you've put God in the center where he belongs. But if you're arrogant, you're full of pride, you think you're something you're not, you're not likely to see things from God's point of view, right? Somebody said he who was wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. Your priorities, your ideas, your perspective is pretty much all there is to the universe, right? And you're not balanced in the biblical sense when your God is you. And we call that idolatry, right? John said, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, that must mean that there are Christian idolaters who who do what? Idolize themselves. Paul talked about it in 2 Timothy, who are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. So balance starts with finding the center, right? You gotta, if you think you're the center, you're eccentric. And the, the, the degree to which you make yourself central is the degree to which you're out of balance. So besides putting God in the center, what other solution does, does Paul offer to not thinking too highly of yourself? He shows us how we got to realize how limited we are without all the rest of our otherwise gifted brothers and sisters. So it's not, it's putting Christ in the center, and then it's putting our brothers and sisters in proper perspective too. Because in verse four, he says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and all these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that is given to each of us. So he's saying we have to enjoy our own gifting without discounting the gifting and the unique contribution that other people make. It's as balanced as a healthy body. It's, he says we belong to each other in this body. So we can't work out of sync with the other members of this body without getting out of sync with Christ and getting imbalanced. I mean, it's kind of like when there's a stroke or uh, a baby born with cerebral palsy, the members, the hands and the feet and the arms uh, uh, don't work normally. Um, You know, I'd like to recommend to you a paper I did uh, in the blog called musingthemysteries.wordpress.com, and it's called do you have any idea how gifted you are? So take a look at that, about these giftings. So I won't go off on that right now, but a balanced life 
can only be lived in community. Otherwise, you're, you're always only up in your own head. I mean, we're not supposed to be dependent on one another or codependent on one another, but what? Interdependent, where our gifts dovetail and we function together as a balanced body. He goes on in verse 6 to say, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encourage, if it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And then in verse 9, he says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. So, Real love, sincere love, not phony love. It's the kind of love that produces balance or shalom. And that kind of love doesn't love everything. He says, hate what is evil. Good love, sincere love, hates some things, but it never hates people. This is the key to balance, isn't it? Where we never hate people, but we hate the things that hurt people. It's not balance when you hate the Democrats or hate the Republicans, or when you hate gays or whites or blacks or Asians. What we should hate is what sin does to gays and whites and blacks and Asians and Democrats and even Republicans. So to live a balanced life, uh, you love everyone, but not everything. It's not some slobbery sentiment. So Verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said, we, we, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. I mean, it, it doesn't it seem counterintuitive to find balance by putting others first? We would think, well, we should put ourselves first, right? I mean, that's the, the most important thing. I mean, couldn't putting others first lead to codependency? But see, codependency isn't love. Codependency is feeding off the needs of others to validate yourself. That's not healthy love. He goes on in verse 11 and says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Doesn't that sound like sustainability? The, the Christian life is is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, and balance is the key to sustainability. I mean, because if we're off kilter, if we're out of balance, out of whack, we won't last. And, and believe me, I've seen so many people that have fallen away from Christ over the years, uh, partially because of being so off kilter, out of balance. And when we waste all our energy going from one extreme to the other, we're never going to make it to the finish line. We won't have enough energy for the finish line. And so a lot of people who gravitate to the edges, to the extremes, they just don't last. They they get all excited about one thing or another. I call them one-tool Christians, where it's that one tool. That's the key to the whole Christian life. That's everything. It's all about speaking in tongues, or it's all about theology, or it's all about miracles, or it's all about social justice, or it's all about worship or liturgy. But you know what? The fact of the matter is that it's all about all of those things and more. Simply put, it's really all about Him. He's the center. Jesus is the center. And if we find Him in the center, He will show us what to do 
and how to do it to live balanced lives. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. So shalom, this completeness, this wholeness, it's community where we're sharing with the Lord's people who are in need. That word share is koinonia, you know, live in community with with one another. Share what we have with other people. And in our culture, one of the reasons I think we're so out of balance is that we're so individualistic and we're so selfish with what's ours. We don't practice hospitality. We don't share. A balanced Christianity is a generous Christianity. And so when I hold on to something for dear life, it's, it becomes my life and it drags me to the edge, to the extreme. And it's in the center where Jesus is that stuff is just stuff. You know, stuff comes and goes, but he's always there. Uh, This is beautiful balance. This is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So vengeance kicks us to the extremes. So somebody's persecuting us. We want to curse them. We want to be vengeful. But that'll kick you to the extreme. That's where anger and fear kicks you to the opposite extreme. So instead of curse, Paul says we have to bless. And that just seems so counterintuitive. Yeah, I mean, but doesn't that sound like Jesus in the Sermon on the the Mount when he talks about loving our enemies and blessing them? And we don't see much of this in the, in, even in the Christian media. This is what drives me nuts. When we talk about each other in the Christian media, especially Christians talking about other Christians from different sides of the aisle or different sides of the theological aisle or different sides of the moral aisle. I mean, it seems like we're more interested in cursing than blessing. And I'm not saying that we all have to agree, but we all have to love, and we all have to agree to disagree agreeably. So people say, well, I don't agree with them about that. And then they go on on a tirade about what's wrong with their brother, rather than say, well, I don't agree with them about that, but I do want to say that he's a good person, or he makes a good point about this, or I agree with this part of what he where he's coming from. Or I'm open to changing my mind about that if he can convince me. But when somebody opposes us, it's just so easy to run to the extreme about them and their view and then overstate our argument in our anger and fear, and now we're on the edge ourselves. We ran ran to the edge and scream our disapproval at one another. It's just so not like Jesus. It's like the person who disagrees with a liberal agenda. And so he just resorts to name-calling. Well, he's a communist. Or or they disagree with a conservative agenda and say, well, he's just a fascist. And this labeling, it's just so easy to do. And it's evocative. And it gets people riled up and makes us sound powerful and important. But it doesn't make us sound important to God. Or when we hear one another speaking like that, we feel empowered ourselves because now we're smart like they are, and we're just swallowing propaganda cloaked in Christian language. 
When we label someone, we're reducing that person to one thing. He's an idiot. She's a slut. They're just a bunch of fools. And all of a sudden, that's all they are is an idiot, a slut, or a fool. It's as though they have nothing to commend themselves as human beings. Well, let me move on. I got a little preachy there, didn't I? But verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to mourn with those who mourn than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice? Especially when the person rejoicing is someone who is succeeding where we are not succeeding. In other words, if somebody's hurting, it's easier to mourn. But if they're uh, if they're rejoicing about some success that I'm not having, I have a harder time uh, rejoicing with them. So rather than celebrate their success, we find some reason to criticize how they've achieved it. That way I can retain my superiority over them. So rejoice with the successful is to say, you know what? I'm not really as good as they are at that. But you know what? I'm so glad they are. It's like congratulating someone who just beat you to a promotion or in a race. You might say, well, I'm disappointed to not do better, but I'm genuinely happy for them. That's the Christian way. I'm just saying. But in our polarized, not only politically, but theologically and spiritually polarized sort of Christianity, we're just happy when people don't succeed and we're not happy when they do. In verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the shalom makers? It's not really peacemaking when we're yelling at people that we disagree with. (laughs) Bill Maher, talking about mean-spirited Christians, said, it's in that book that you hold up when you're screaming at gays. Oh, doesn't that hurt? But harmony, we need to harmonize, not be discordant with one another. You know, to be righteous, we don't have to be unpleasant. Jerry Cook said, you, you love Jesus only as much as the person you love the least. Hmm. He, Paul went on to say, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So like I said before, pride is the big thing that keeps us out of sync with God and with, with one another. The biggest cause of imbalances and a lack of shalom is pride. People who are more about being right and heard and important than being helpful. Mother Teresa said, humility is nothing but the truth. It's the way things actually are. To be even keeled, it's, it's about finding your true center and to know that really in the grand scheme of things, you're not really all that great. He said, willing to associate with people of low position. It's so, let me just say it this way. It's so junior high when we're not willing to hang out with people who don't make us look cool. You know, some people haven't ever grown up out of junior highness enough to stop doing that where we're obsessed with appearance. You know, I heard about a a church that Uh, that was on television, was televising their services. And what they did was that they always put the well, the best dressed and best looking people in front of the camera to make themselves look good. Makes me want to vomit when I think of that. 
That's spiritual conceitedness. I'm more spiritual than you because I know more, because I pray more, because I give more. We're better than that other church because we have, oh, and this, this phrase, if you know me, you know this just drives me crazy, because we have good worship. <laughs> I'm not going to go off on that right now. Uh, you can find it in, in my blog, uh, a, a couple of posts on called Good Worship. But I hear this, their songs in that church are so last year, or we're reformed, or we, we're the ones who, we let the spirit move. Conceited Christians, ouch. I mean, the world watches us, but it's kind of like they're watching this tennis game and get a stiff neck trying to keep track of the ball being bounced back and forth as we argue with each other. Remember, the disciples said, do you want us to call down fire on those those Samaritans? Jesus answered, you don't know what spirit you're from. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That is, as far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, always do your part. If you're at odds with someone or with a group of someone's, it should never be your fault. If it is, repent. You can't can't make people be at peace with you, but you can be at peace with them. And how can we be living at peace with everyone if we're always, always angry at them for the way they believe or how they live or afraid that they're going to contaminate us if we have a conversation with them? Is it okay to disagree with One another? Sure. Disapprove of one another's lifestyle? Absolutely. But disdain or disparage them for it? Never. There's no shalom there. In verse 19, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, if there's an injustice, yeah, try to correct it. But that's different than revenge. You can't, you don't get to wish harm on someone and, and try to love them at the same time. You can't do it. It's, those are mutually contradictory principles. You got to leave judgment to someone who's qualified, and that ain't you, and it ain't me. Booker T. Washington said, "If I will not allow any man to, to make me lower myself by hating him. Okay, that's Paul's description of a, a beautifully balanced Christian life where we think of ourselves with sober judgment, where we have a great appreciation for community and the giftedness of our brothers and sisters, where we hate what's evil, cling to what's good, and we're so devoted to one another in love, we can honor somebody above us and, and practice hospitality and share with the Lord's people who are in need. And those who are trying to hurt us, we bless them and not curse them. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we don't pay people back in revenge, but we live in forgiveness. 
But let's go back now and talk about how we get there. I mean, how do we even begin to desire the center, the beautiful balance, the good, the acceptable and perfect will of God? How does that shalom become a priority? We got to go back to the beginning of the chapter where where Paul begins. We'll end where Paul begins. Let me read verses 1 to 2 again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So His good, pleasing, and perfect will is that description of balance. Then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to describe the kind of lifestyle that reflects that good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's not the conceited kind. It's, it's not the, uh, the fiercely independent kind, but it's the kind kind, the forgiving kind, not the vengeful kind, the shalom kind. But again, how do we get there? Well, he says, in view of God's mercy, I just have three things to share from these two verses. The first thing is, get a good look at mercy. And if you want to get a really good look at mercy, the mercy of God, then you got you to gotta read through and study and ponder the first 11 chapters of Romans. I'm telling you, this book of Romans is profound, a profound description of the mercy of God. See, because if we don't see mercy, we're doomed to the edges from the beginning. There's no way to get to the center, no way to get to a balanced life without knowing and embracing the mercy of God. You know, like John said, we know and rely on the love of God. So the degree to which we get mercy is a factor in the degree to which we can find and live in the center The most out-of-balanced way of living is to not realize how much you need mercy. If you think you're something, then you're, you're not living in the center and you don't understand how much you need the mercy of God. To think of yourself more highly than you ought is to not realize how much you need mercy. Get a good look at mercy. It all comes from Him. It, it, it's, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Get a good look at mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. And then secondly, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And And so my second thing is, you know, first is get a good look at mercy. This is give everything you know about yourself to everything you know about God. But it's a living sacrifice he talks about here. You know, in the Old Testament, they would give a lamb. You know, to me, that's just a lot easier than giving yourself, right? I mean, a lamb, you just, you take even your best lamb and you put it on the altar and you give it to God. But this is giving, Paul is recommending that we're giving of ourselves, our living selves. And so the degree to which we give ourselves, our whole selves, our living selves, is a factor in the degree to which we can find and live in the center, to live balanced. See, because when we give ourselves over to Him, we're we're relinquishing our rights to do things our own way. 
We're even relinquishing our own preferences when he asks them, asks us to lay them down. In other words, you might say, well, I prefer to worship with people of my own kind, whatever that means. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit would say, yeah, I need you to lay that down and go join a black church or a youth-driven church or a church that sings hymns or sing church that never sings hymns or a church that dances in the aisle or a church that, that does nothing but kneel or whatever. Or you might say, well, I prefer to, to drink with my friends. And he might say, well, I'm asking you to lay that down. Or I prefer to work in real estate and live in a gated community. He might say, well, lay that down and live in a smaller, a smaller house and give more away. Are any of those preferences sinful? Not necessarily. You know, want to worship with people that you can relate to or want to drink with your friends or want to uh, live in a gated community. In themselves, they're not sinful. But when we give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, then we're giving Him the permission, so to speak, the option to speak into our preferences. When we're giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, we don't get to hold on to our preferences when He calls us away from them. So it keeps us off the extremes where our preferences rule, because sometimes our extremes are where our preferences are. And where our preferences are, it, and we don't lay our lives down as living sacrifices, it's as though they're locked up uh, safe in a safe, and we don't give God the combination of that safe. When we make Him the center we do give him the combination of the safe, and we have something about which to measure ourselves against. I mean, we're not always going to get it right because of how poorly we distinguish between truth and tastes. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of what Christianity espouses is more about taste than truth. Uh, I, I, I prefer this. My taste, I have a taste for that. And we then interpret that to mean, well, that is what eternal truth is all about. But if we'll keep looking at Jesus, he will relentlessly attract us to himself and away from the extremes, from the edges. I mean, I know it might seem counterintuitive to seek balance by giving our whole life away, where we don't retain control of it. But we're not talking about a balance between a passion for God and stubborn atheism. The balance we're looking for is within our faith, not apart from it. If you will give everything you know about yourself to everything you know about God, that's going to be a key to finding a a life of shalom, not just a, a peace where there's the absence of conflict in your life, but that you exude a complete and whole and balanced life uh, in this world to those that are around you. And then thirdly, I noticed in his passage, he says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is good, pleasant, and perfect will of God. So the third thing is get ready for unrelenting transformation. See, we have to get our cues from the right place, from the right person, in order to live shalom. We have to be sure that the other voices 
are just that. They're voices, but they're not verity. It's not, he said, don't be conformed to this world. We can't let an unredeemed system be our guide and expect to live a balanced life. But we have to give the Holy Spirit permission to inform us and transform us. We got to give him permission to make whatever adjustments are needed to our thinking to keep us off the edges. And I'm just not sure that we're willing to do that oftentimes because we want to hold on to our our distinctive place or our distinctive right to to be angry at those people or to fear that and to run away from this. But when the wind blows us off course, the Holy Spirit blows on our sails to get us back if we're willing to keep our sails up. And he talks about renewing our minds. And we don't renew our minds when we're being squeezed into a mold uh, of a system set against God's kingdom. By, by, listen, by swallowing propaganda cloaked in Christian language. Uh, I'm just so concerned about many of us who haven't been able to distinguish the difference between Christian propaganda and truth. But the only way we can do that is to immerse ourselves in the truth and, and read, as Bob Mumford used to say, read all the verses you don't have underlined. Not just the ones that we read to confirm our already set in stone predispositions, but the ones that God hasn't been able to break through uh, the outer shell of our arrogance and uh, begin to transform us on the inside. And it's at that point, if we can do that, get ready for this unrelenting transformation, it's at that point, Paul says, that we'll be able to test and approve what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. When he says test and approve, it almost sounds like uh, you're, you know, you're going to dip your toe in the water to see if it's what you want uh, to dive into. But that's not really what he's saying here. He's saying you'll experience the will of God. It's you have to dive in and then you'll see that it's good, pleasing, and perfect. Jump in and you'll see how good it is and how pleasing it is and how perfect it is. Testing and approving means it's at that point you'll experience it if you do give yourselves wholly and unreservedly, unreservedly to him. You, if you'll get a good look at mercy... Give everything you know about yourself to all that you know about God and get ready for unrelenting transformation. This will then catapult you into a place where your, your edges, your, your, the ugly at the edges, that uh, you, you won't be so edgy, you won't be so extreme, but you'll find Christ in the center there and be that kind of attractive follower of Jesus that other people want to know about our Jesus as a result of the the kind of shalom that we live. Well, all that said, in Jesus' name, shalom. Shalom.